what if a person led a team and played football? Would that football team be the most powerful? Today they're going to play that, right? There's going to be a game. How many people are voting for the, the New England Patriots? Okay, we've got a couple of people. How many people are voting for the Los Angeles Rams? How many people don't care? Oh boy, I've got, got a lot of people there. So this year, I think I'm going to vote for the, um, the Patriots. And, and the reason why is I think that if they win, there's a good chance that their coach quarterback and some of their key players will retire. Um, and that will end it. So then we can get other teams in there, okay? So, so I don't know what's going to happen. It's all for fun. And it really is all for fun. But it's this whole competition thing. Who is the best? Now you start taking a team and you're giving them weapons, they become an army. So now who's the most powerful army? Well, the biggest is China. Most would say that technologically taking all things into consideration, it's still the good old USA. So if the USA has the most powerful nation, then who's the most powerful person? Is it the president? Would it be President Donald Trump? Is he the most powerful man in the world? Maybe, except that he's up for re-election here pretty soon. He can only reign eight years, and everything he does is getting checked and balanced all the time by two other branches. He doesn't have absolute power, and it's only for a limited period. What if a man had complete power over everybody? He didn't have to answer to anybody, and the whole world was at his feet. That would be pretty unusual. Has that ever happened? Yeah, at least one time it happened. It happened when King Nebuchadnezzar II reigned over the Babylonian Empire. And he was given a name so we could remember him, too. What a name. Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man possibly the world has ever known, at least at that time, to, to reign over one whole area. He had this incredible power. And yet, despite his power, the, remember the theme of our series on Daniel is, is that God is over all nations. All nations are under God. We may say that our nation is under God, but whether a nation recognizes it or not, they're under God. And that theme is played out again today as we see the most powerful man in the world ultimately bowing down to the one true God. You see, God told Israel that they were to follow him, and if they didn't, that they would lose their power, that he would, he would, take, he would just basically destroy the nation. And that's what he did. He used Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument to destroy the nation and to take the people as exiles, as captives into his Babylonian empire. But God was still on his throne. And he intervenes to humble the proud and to give hope to the humble. To let his people know that he's still around and there's other prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. He makes an example, if you will, of Nebuchadnezzar today. Fascinating passage. We're going to take a look at it. We'll be looking at uh, Daniel chapter 4. There's 37 verses, so we'll be jumping around a little bit. Not, we'll be going chronologically through it, but we'll jump around to different highlights. I'm not going to read every verse. And I want to encourage you to read it all, if you haven't already, when you go home tonight and think about it. And then also read chapter 5 for next week. So you're all ready. So you've got your homework assignment. The theme here is that God rules over all kingdoms. And we're going to first read the first three verses. And we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar, this man that we just described as having so much power, that Nebuchadnezzar praises God. Starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the, in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is really remarkable. Why? It's the only time in all the Bible that a non-Jew, non-Christian, Gentile, pagan king actually is the author of a chapter. Pretty amazing that he would do this, that he would write this. And some people have actually questioned that. They say, no way, this couldn't be. Have we found examples of him saying this in other places outside of the Bible? And the answer is, no, we haven't. But we don't have exhaustive information on Nebuchadnezzar. It's not like we can go back and look at his yearbook and things like people do today and look at the whole history of the man. We don't have all that. Um, And also, some of the things that we're going to hear today would not have been received in a popular way by Babylon. It would not have been good PR for a nation that prided itself on being polytheistic and worshiping all sorts of different gods. So it just, you know, it is not going to be a popular thing for him to do. So it was also true that people would get rid of things, you know, in the ancient world. We've actually found things that have been discarded, purposely tried to mask over. So it's possible that that this information, if there was another document, would have been done away with. But what we do know is that this is written just like his writings. We have other writings quite a bit by Nebuchadnezzar, and this is the style that he wrote in. He probably dictated it to Daniel. And we do know that it's written in his language, Aramaic. And there's no reason to doubt that he actually wrote this. And perhaps one day we'll find another document that will support it. But for now, um, we have this information. It's just incredible that he would write what he writes. That he recognizes that God is above all other gods that they would possibly worship. And that he realizes that God rules forever. You know, he's been ruling at this point for about 20 years. But his kingdom will go 43 years in total. And then after that, 25 years after he's gone, his kingdom will collapse. But how long will God's kingdom last? It lasts forever, right? God's kingdom never, ever ends. And so he's recognizing this, and he's recognizing that God is the power behind his throne, so to speak. He's the one who's given him everything that he has, and he'll do whatever he wants to do. We don't see that very often. It's seldom that we see a leader that recognizes that God is the one who's really in control. That's one of the things I enjoy about um, Lincoln's second inaugural address. It's almost sermonic in nature, and if you want to read it, you can go down to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. and read it on the walls. Or you can click your computer, too, and read it. Um, But what's interesting about it is that it's the only time that I know of in our country that a president has very clearly stated that God is the one who's in control of the affairs of man. We don't normally notice that. And when somebody does, we as believers say, wow, they got it right. That's exciting. Well, if it's good for them to get it right, isn't it also true that we need to recognize that God is in control of all the affairs in our lives? It's the same for us. So the question is, do you acknowledge that God, God's sovereignty in your life, do you acknowledge that God is in control of everything in your life? I think we can safely say that um, nothing, we, nothing is, we've never achieved anything good apart from God. We've never achieved anything good apart from God. 
any ability you have comes from God. Now, you'll hear the other thing, you know, like with the football players will come up and they'll say, you know, I want to, want to thank God for the success I've had. And then they'll go on and say, but I want to tell all of you that if you work hard and you do the best you can, you can be as successful as me. Even if you're not six foot five, 260 pounds, and, you know, and, and are blessed with this great speed and background. It doesn't always work that way. God makes everybody different. He gives us different bodies, different, different minds, different gifts, different abilities. But anything you have comes from him. You ever thought about that? Where you were born, the position you were put in. So many things in life, when you stop and look about it, the reason you got that job, the, the fact that you have any money, all the different pieces of the puzzle come from him. We can't credit ourselves with our success. We're not solely rich because of us. We're not athletic just because of us. We're not great in music just because of us. We can't even thank ourselves entirely for the relationships we have because how, how did you end up where you were and they ended up where they were? You had no control over where you were born and you had oftentimes no control over people coming into your lives and relationships that you've built. Everything traces itself back to God. And Nebuchadnezzar, at this point in time, was understanding that God is the one who is in control of these affairs. And so he praised him for it. I'd encourage you to take some time. You might even do it, you know, today with your family. Stop and go around the table or with some friends and say, what are the things... So what are some things we can thank God for, specifically in our life? The list should be endless. When you start thinking through every, every good thing that's ever been accomplished in your life, traces back to God. And that was something that Nebuchadnezzar surely got a feel for here. Now, it goes on and tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is broken by God in, chapter, in verses 4 through 33. And this is where I'm not going to read all of it because there's just a lot here. But we'll walk through it um, and we'll highlight some of the main points. What happens is Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And in this dream, again, it is troubling. And he follows typical protocol and he brings in his advisors, his wise men, to help him interpret this dream. And once again, they prove inept. They cannot interpret the dream. And it's fascinating because scholars have looked at this and they've studied it and they've said, why couldn't they interpret this dream? With the information they knew and their background and training, this one should have been pretty clear. But I'll give you a clue. The dream had a bad ending. And you don't usually want to deliver bad news to a king that's this powerful. And so they said, why don't you just talk to our boss? We know he'll give you the straight answer. And he knew he would, because the boss was a person he had put there, the chief of his magicians and the, the governor of his state, his personal advisor, a man by the name of Belteshazzar. That's what he called him. That was his Babylonian name. What is his real name? Daniel. So he says, Belteshazzar, come and talk to me and interpret this dream for me. And they sit down, and it's kind of an interesting moment. They've known each other for about 20 years now. So the king, he's probably mid to late 40s. Daniel, probably early, mid 30s. And 
Daniel hears the dream. I'm not going to tell you what the dream was first. I, I, they, they tell you the dream, then he interprets it, but I'll put it all together. But let's just say that Daniel sits down with them, and they, they're talking to each other, and he tells Daniel the dream, and Daniel has this look on his face like something's really wrong. You ever have that happen when you're talking to somebody, and all of a sudden they have a look on their face, and you think, what did I say wrong? Maybe it was your first date. <laughs> what did I say wrong? Okay, and so, he, and the king, it's really interesting how the king responds. The king goes into almost a paternal mode. He kind of coaches Daniel and he says, Daniel, I really want to know this. Please don't be upset. Tell me. Tell me what you, you know. And Daniel says this. He says, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. And it's almost like a sidebar to our story, but there's, a, there's an amazing lesson right here. One is that this king as ruthless and as arrogant as he is, is a man made in God's image. And like all human beings, there is something good about him. If nothing else, it's that he's one of God's own. And he has shown that he can be reasonable and even kind. And he's put Daniel and his friends in high positions. But he's also done some pretty irrational and unkind things. And Daniel has the right to be very upset with him. He kidnapped him from his home, and he took him here and made him a slave, essentially. And then he went back and he destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed his home. He destroyed everything he had. And then, you know, Daniel still told him, when Daniel was a teenager, he interpreted a dream for him, and, and all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar showed the kind side, and he starts praising God, and he says, he must be the greatest of all the gods I worship. But then a few years later, he took Daniel's three friends and he threw them in a furnace to burn them to death because they wouldn't bow down to his statue that he had created. And then when they come out, he bows down on the ground and he says, this must be the greatest God of all that once again, he's done this wonderful thing. And so there's this situation where, I mean, he's almost like schizophrenic at times. He has so much power and he's so ruthless, he's so arrogant, he's so barbaric. And yet there's something good about him. And Daniel could choose to hate him but you see, Daniel isn't bitter. He forgives the man and he's kind to him. And, and there's a sense that these men really care for each other. And kind of strange. You wouldn't expect that. But you see that Daniel is a man who forgives. And he understands that God's in control. And as a result, he begins to have an impact on this man's life. And they begin to have a relationship. And Daniel says, oh, I don't want to tell you this. And the king says, please tell me. And so he begins. You had a dream. And you dreamt about a tree, and it was the biggest tree you ever saw. And the tree kept growing. And in the tree, all the birds came to nest. And in the tree, under the tree, all the beasts of the field came, and they ate grass. And some of the fruit was low-hanging, and the, the, the animals could eat it. And there were leaves, plenty of leaves for shade, and it was absolutely beautiful. He says, do you know what that's about? The king says, no. He says, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. That's you in the Babylonian Empire. Everybody that prospers, prospers because of you and the power that you have and the control that you have in this land. King says, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Starts off well, but then it changes. An angel comes from heaven on a special commission as a holy lumberjack, cuts down the tree, strips it bare, and suddenly the tree is addressed as if the tree were human. 
And a voice out of the heaven says to the tree, for seven seasons, you will be like a beast, eating the grass of the field and having the dew of the morning on your back. And then there's this, this stump, and the stump, it says, is bound. And that's the dream. And Daniel explains to him, basically, the seven seasons. Now, he doesn't go into detail about the seven seasons, but it's understood that the seven seasons would be seven years. Seven was a number of completion, like the perfect number. So it will be complete in seven years. For seven years, you are going to become like a beast. You're going to become like an animal. And you're going to eat the grass. And you'll have the dew of the morning on your back. That's what's going to happen to you. It may be, some suggest that there's hope that the stump has been bound, that someday you can unbound the stump and maybe that means that maybe he'll get his throne back, but he doesn't address that at this point. At this point, it looks like all hope is lost. And there's silence. I can only imagine what King Nebuchadnezzar looked like at this point, his face, his eyes. He knew that Daniel always told him the truth and he'd seen the miracles before. And suddenly Daniel does something that is uncustomary. He just can't help himself because I think because of the love of God within him, he actually loves this man who in so many ways is such an evil, barbaric man. And he turns to him and he says, Oh, king, can I, can I offer some counsel? The king says, Yes. And he says, I believe if you live more righteously, really live a moral life, and if you take care of the poor and oppressed in your kingdom, perhaps, perhaps this may be postponed or maybe it'll never happen. And the scene ends. And a year passes. Twelve months. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar was compliant. Perhaps God was just long-suffering, we're not told. But then at that one point, after 12 months, the king goes up on the roof. Long before the song was written, Up on the Roof. You know, some of you may have heard that song. Everything's all right. Everything's all right up on the roof. He goes up on the roof because that's what they did in those days. Because it's really nice up on the roof. Especially without electricity. Can you imagine all the stars? It's a, it's a beautiful day up on the roof. And probably the sun is just setting it when he first goes up. It's cooler up there too. Especially in a hot climate without air conditioning. So the king was probably in a custom of going up on the roof and he's walking around and he's looking at his kingdom. What did he see? He saw what uh, has now become what was then basically the capital of Babylon and now has become one of the greatest archaeological digs in the world. The land that he was looking at is modern day, basically modern day Iraq. And as he looks around, he sees, and we've had excavations done now of the great Ishtar gate and wall. There was a brick facade where they actually had pictures. Can you imagine this in the ancient world uh, giant, of giant um, bulls and dragons? The wall was so big that four chariots could pass back and forth, like four lanes. That's how big it was. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
And then he looks the other way, and we don't know exactly where this was at yet. They're still trying to determine the exact location, but he could see the hanging gardens that he had built for his wife, which were also one of the seven wonders of the world. As he spanned across back and forth, he saw these magnificent temples, and he had served as an architect and planner and designer of these great temples. And then he could see another incredible design that he had participated in, a bridge that spanned the Euphrates River. And as he looked out in the distance, perhaps he remembered his military conquest that he had never failed to defeat his foes. He controlled the whole world from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea. Everything there, everything he knew of was under him. Everything was at his feet. And as he looked out at all these things, he started thinking about what a great guy he was. And he started getting caught up. He started getting wrapped up with himself again. And he looked out and he said these words, these faithful words. He says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while he's still speaking, listen to what God says. O King Nebuchadnezzar, out of heaven, he hears him. To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And right then and there, he becomes like an animal. And he goes down outside and he starts eating the grass and he starts clawing on the ground. And he continues to do this for seven years until his hair becomes matted and looks like eagle's feathers and his fingernails become long and clawed like a bird's. He just completely loses it. And he's brought to a moment of, of extreme you know, humility. It's, yeah, it's just, just really a, a sad situation for the old king. And it just shows that God takes care of these situations. God is in complete control. It reminds me of King David when, before he became king, when King Saul died. David said this in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 25. How are the mighty fallen? How are the mighty fallen? If you ever think about that, we think a lot of times in present tense. You know, we joked a little bit about the Patriots. Will they ever go away? It could be 10 years from now, some other team is in that position. And people, younger people are coming up, don't even remember the Patriots. Because people come and go. And powers come and go. You think of the greatest conquerors, at least in the Western world, after Nebuchadnezzar, King Cyrus the Great was killed in battle. Um... Alexander the Great, they always have the Great by them, or frequently. Alexander the Great, what happened to him? He died of typhoid fever probably when he was only 33 years old. Most people remember what happened to Caesar, Julius Caesar. He was his own friend, Brutus, as one of his loyal lieutenants assassinates him. Napoleon died on an island um, from probably stomach problems that he had, just isolated and exiled for years. Hitler took his own life as his country was crumbling. It doesn't usually end well. And so, you know, there, there's this humility that comes there, and I think it's a good passage for it is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, where it says, Pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. 
from a biblical perspective, we can't go up until we go down. And I can say that though I haven't really enjoyed it very much, I have always learned and grown and been in the long run most appreciative for my times of failure, my times of defeat, my mistakes, my brokenness, when life has fallen apart. Those are the times when I've always been closest to God and when I've grown the most. It's an essential part of the Christian life. For several years, um, I worked, I had the privilege of working for a recovery ministry. And I've worked a lot over the years in various ways with people who have struggled with drug and alcohol addiction and other addictions. Um, And one of the things that I have found is that when the guys and gals come out from the other end of that, because they've come into a relationship with God, the living God, and they allow Him to work in their life, it's sweet because they know themselves and they know they're broken human beings who have become completely dependent on God. What was really interesting when I took that position is the stark contrast between where I was and where I had come from. Prior to that job, I was working as a a manager, a training manager for a a pretty well-sized distribution company. And they had actually flown, would fly me to different places in the country and I would train them for leadership. And I was working a lot with their executives. And these guys were smug and sometimes a little arrogant. And their lives were empty and pretentious. And then I worked with these people in recovery and their lives were real because they'd hit bottom and they were real people. And I'll tell you what, if I had to make a choice, I'd rather be the person who came out on the good side of recovery than the person who thought they had it all together and lived this shallow existence for their life here on earth and then had to face God afterwards. And I've come to this conclusion in life that all of us are really messed up. We all are. We're all sinners and we all are messed up. And the best thing you can do is get to that point where you recognize it and where you're honest with it. I, I don't care. If you're, if you're trying as hard as you can, you know, if you're trying to, to be honest, if you're being honest with yourself and you're trying to work on your areas of weakness and so forth... You may never get there, but I'm okay with that because you're honest with it and you're trying to do something about it. What bothers me the most is when you meet people who won't admit they have the problems and their life is built around defending the fraud. That's a hard thing. It's hard to have a relationship with people like that. And so I think really the challenge for us today is is to ask this question, are you broken? It's counterintuitive for our culture because we want to always act like, no, I've got it together. Don't you have it together? We'll deflect all the time. We're always trying to make everybody else look bad so that we look good, right? Not my problem. It's your problem. But reality is we don't have it together. And when we're weak, we're strong, Paul says. When we're honest about our weaknesses. I'm not asking you to go out and make your life miserable, but I I would encourage you to seek brokenness. And and the most basic way to do it is to ask yourself and to know, what are your weaknesses? I'm not saying just what you think they are, but maybe having people that know you best help you figure out what are you weak in. 
That's a good thing to know. What are the areas that tempt you the most? Where are you most likely to fall? Where do you need the most support? Those are the things that are going to keep you out of trouble in the long run, and they're going to help you be a better person in the short run. That's what just helps you develop as a person. So be honest with those things and get people around you who love you just for who you are and can help you to work on them. And, and it's okay, because we all, we all have stuff. But we need to be humble people that are dependent on God, and that's the example we have here. We need to be broken and dependent on God rather than thinking that we can do it all on our own. One, if we keep thinking we can do it all on our own, we're going to fall one day, hopefully before we get to heaven and have to face God for it. So we'll go on with Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll see at the end, it, it ends with a good, it's a good story. It ends well. Nebuchadnezzar is restored by God, even though it wasn't promised. There's kind of like we said, a little bit of an allusion to the stump that was bound. So maybe, there, maybe there's a little bit of an allusion to this, but, but we're not told specifically that he will, but God graciously restores him anyway. I want to read this last portion, starting in verse 34. In the end of the day, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is amazing. He goes back into power. Um, we don't know what was wrong with him. You know, a lot of scientists have studied this, and there is a psychological disease called bonalgy, where a person actually thinks that they're a beast and begins to behave that way. That may be what he had, but even if it is, God brought it upon him, and God took it away. And so he's restored back into power, and it's amazing as he's restored back to power how he praises God and recognizes God's the one who's in control of everything, and he notices that for the glory of my kingdom, not for my glory, but for my kingdom's glory, God, for the good of the people in my kingdom, God has put me back into power. There's a whole change of attitude. There's a whole change of person, person here. He's, he's a different guy. And here's something that's very interesting. We have a lot that is written about Nebuchadnezzar, a lot that he wrote about himself, bragging about his exploits. 43 years he's king. And for almost all those years, there's at least every year that we, we hear imp information about him and how he conquered a nation or how he built a temple or how he built the bridge. There's always a list of things that he did, just like nonstop action, except for one period. From 582 to 575, the record on King Nebuchadnezzar is silent. And if you know your math, that figures out to seven years. For seven years, he just sort of disappears from the scene. And then he pops back up and is king for 10 more years and his kingdom ends and he dies. 
So there's every reason to believe that this is exactly what happened to him. And from what we see from elsewhere in the Bible, too, others were not excited about it. This position that he took was contrary to what all the other people around him believed in. And that's probably why we haven't, we don't have it anyplace else. But it seems like it was genuine. Do you think we'll meet him in heaven? What do you think? Kind of mixed views on that. Most scholars seem to think no. They say, you know, he says earlier in the story that God is the most high God, like he's the highest of all the other gods, that he's never really given his life to God. But I think it's intriguing that that's the beginning of the story, but at the end of the story, he refers to him as the king of heaven, as he's the sole king. He's the only one. I don't know, but I think there's a good chance that Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. And we won't know till we get to heaven. But even if he didn't, we have no other example of a person of such power bowing his knee before the real king as we have in this book and in this chapter today. Pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Dave was a friend of mine. He grew up in a dysfunctional Navy family in San Diego, the middle of three boys that were wild. He began dating a girl named Mary who grew up from an equally dysfunctional family and they were kind of confused and so they went to church to try to figure things out and both came to know Christ. Dave became an inspired student and went on to become a chiropractor. He also invested in different businesses and became very successful. He became the elder at a relatively large, somewhat prominent church in the San Diego area. Dave one time drove me around and showed me all the property and houses at one point that he possessed, that he owned. And then Dave injured his back and his career as a chiropractor came to a sudden halt. And he ran into some financial problems with his businesses and by the time everything settled, he'd lost pretty much everything he'd had. And he turned to the Lord like he never had before. And he ended up becoming a pastor, and that's where we became friends. We were associate pastors together. And Dave gave a sermon once on this passage. And you know what he said? He said, I was Nebuchadnezzar. He said, God gave me so much material success, and I took credit for it all. And it wasn't until God took it away that I finally really fell on my knees before him and embraced him as my God, as I should have before. I was too much going through the motions. I needed to be broken. I think God does that in each of our lives. We go through those times. And we'll all go through hard times in our life because that's, that's just what it is. Um, the question I have for you, though, today is, has God restored you, maybe brought you back out of a hard time? But, but here's the key to it, is when you go through a hard time, and you will, the question is, how do you respond? You can respond in bitterness and shake your fist against God, or you can become better 
and embrace him and seek after him all the more and grow in your relationship with him. At any rate, Jesus says the way to achieve things, you know how you you get successful in things? The key is not worrying about it, Jesus says, but in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So the idea is that we seek God first. Um, that's, that's what's most important. And he'll take care of the rest. You'll go through difficult times, but I would encourage you that when you go through those difficult times to understand that God is still in control. And to realize that some of the things that you might consider your greatest failures, you know, we, we think success is winning a Super Bowl. But from God's, in God's background, the way God looks at it, some of what you might consider and the world might consider your greatest failures, if you are being faithful to God, may in fact be your greatest victories and may be celebrated in a wonderful way in heaven one day because you were faithful to God. And perhaps Nebuchadnezzar will be among those cheering the loudest. One thing for certain that we see in today's passage when the real king stands up, we need to make sure that we all bow down. You join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the example of Nebuchadnezzar. Boy, I would really like to meet him in heaven. He's a fascinating person. Uh, but we don't know um, if we will. But we do know that each of us can know that we'll be in heaven if we give our lives to you. And I pray that if anybody here does not know you today, they'd come and talk to us about that so they could come into your kingdom. And for the rest of us, help us to grow still closer to you, that even our defeats might be victories as we turn and follow Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.